Uh, If you remember back to week one, we recognize that the relationship between Paul and Timothy is one where uh, Paul met Timothy's family. He met uh, grandma, he met his mom, and he met Timothy, and he said, hey, I really like these folks. Uh, Invited Timothy into kind of a mentoring relationship to prep him for ministry. Uh, And then Timothy's particular job is Paul would send him out uh, into churches that were struggling. Uh, and so, so we find that, uh, that he would kind of send Timothy to address issues uh, in churches that were as they arose. And certainly Ephesus was one, of the, was one such church, so the kind of the rootedness or the context for these two letters is, in fact, the ancient city of Ephesus. And Ephesus had, uh, the, the, the faith community there had some teachers in their congregation who were teaching some weird things about what it meant to follow Jesus. Uh, they were teaching some weird things about Jesus. And so Paul sends Timothy to confront those teachers and restore order in this important church. Um, and once Timothy got there, then Paul sent these two letters uh, to Ephesus to Timothy. And so what we have here is kind of Paul's letters to Timothy as Timothy is ministering in the, the faith community of Ephesus in order to kind of fulfill his calling and his mission to restore order in this church. Does that make sense? So that's kind of where we're at. So let me remind you of the structure of the letter, kind of where we've been so far. In chapter one, Paul is uh, commissions Timothy. And, and you'll remember that in this section, Paul sets himself up as uh, an example of the possibilities of grace. Uh, In other words, Paul says, if God can do in my life what he's done, then certainly there is no person that is outside the reaches of God's grace. And so Paul sets himself up. He says, "I I was the chief of sinners, and now yet by God's grace I'm called to be an apostle. And so there's no one outside the reach of God's grace. In that opening section, Timothy also, or Paul also reminds Timothy that authentic Christ-centered teaching will lead us into love, not fear. Uh, in other words, Paul kind of says, hey, I did that whole fear-based religion thing, uh, and I'm not interested in setting up a whole other fear-based system just now under the banner of Christ. I'm interested in setting up something that is now going to be motivated by love. Uh, in chapters 2 through 6, uh, so kind of in a section further than where we've been so far, in the first half of chapter 6, this is where Paul kind of lays out specific instructions for Timothy and his ministry in the church. So anytime you're reading chapters 2 through 6, you kind of got to recognize, or the first part of chapter 6, you got to recognize these are very specific instructions rooted in this particular context and in this community. So Paul begins with a call to prayer for national leaders in particular and to pray that they would help lead us in the ways of peace. Uh, and Paul's conviction here is that when leaders do a good job of, cover, of governing toward peace, then it creates a better environment for the, for the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, and so it's kind of like um, in the Old Testament, as the people of Israel were exiled in Babylon, they're instructed by the prophet to pray for Babylon, pray for the well-being of Babylon, uh, because that will help us uh, in, in seeking to become God's people. He's also careful in that section, though, to make sure that our hope is rooted in Jesus, who is the one mediator between God and man, and not in government or political leaders, because Paul's conviction, again, is Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, <laughs> right? Uh, and so let's not make sure our hope is misplaced. There is, some, there is some place, there's a place to pray for government leaders and pray for national leaders, but let's not misplace our hope. And then last week, uh, we explored the rather explosive things that Paul has to say about women in this Ephesian church. Uh, And hopefully what we did last week was, hopefully we cleared up some misunderstandings that this passage uh, often carries with it. Uh, Sometimes the passage that we looked at last week is used to silence women, keep them unempowered. 
Uh, hopefully we cleared all that up. And if you're intrigued, listen to the podcast. I encourage you to do that uh, because this is certainly not what Paul is trying to accomplish in that passage. So today uh, we want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're skipping over verse 3. We can't cover everything. We don't have time for everything. You know, Advent is around the corner. And so we got to get to, we got to cover these letters before Advent. So, uh, so 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I want to read the first 10 verses uh, for us this morning. It says this. Uh, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars and whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. Uh, Now they forbid marriage and they demand abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected provided it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. Now, if you put these instructions, uh, if you put these instructions before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, who nourished us on the words of faith and the sound teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with profane myths and old wives' tales, but train yourself in godliness for holding promise For for while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way and holds promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and we struggle because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of all those who believe. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to give one quick observation before we really dive into this passage. The passage begins with, in the days to come, uh, or some translations will say, in the last days. Uh, So when we read that, our tendency is to kind of relegate this passage purely to the future, that this is a day yet to come, that even when Paul was writing it, this was a day in the future, and then we kind of assume that for us, it's also something that has yet to, to take place. Uh, But I want us to recognize that this phrase, in the last days, uh, is a a phrase that Paul uses with with a fair degree of regularity to talk about his own current time. In other words, Paul believed strongly that he was living in the days just before Jesus would return. Now, Paul believed this not in the unlock the Bible code to determine the date of Jesus' return kind of way. Uh, But rather, Paul believed this in a live with a sense of intentionality and urgency kind of way, right? So there's two different approaches to like the last days. One is uh, one of of, of kind of franticness. The Bible has this kind of code that you unlock, yada, yada. But the other one is, hey, the moment could come at any time, and so we live ready. We live with a certain degree of intentionality. And this is certainly what Paul is talking about. Uh, So I say all that to say we shouldn't relegate the message of this passage to the future because for Paul, it had very present concern. It had a very present concern that he was trying to address. After all, remember this, if you just look at the context of the letter, it's to Timothy who's ministering in the Ephesian church and trying to address issues. So Paul isn't going to say, hey, sometime in the future, Timothy, when you're probably not even there, this is going to take place. Rather, he's saying, hey, in this current time, this is happening, let's address it together. So there's a very kind of urgent, present need to this passage. And we've been saying that, hey, there was some weird teaching about Jesus and what it meant to follow Jesus. And 
as we seek to kind of reverse engineer the context, this is actually the first clue that we get about the nature of what that teaching probably was. So it appears that some of that odd teaching that Paul sent Timothy to address is related to food and to marriage. In other words, some of the teachers were saying that marriage is inherently bad and should be avoided. I'm so glad I didn't hear any amens there. That's very, very encouraging, okay? So, so, Paul, so some teachers are saying, marriage is bad, don't do it, right? And then there was also some teaching about certain, how certain foods should be avoided. Now, we don't know exactly what foods were being addressed. Some scholars think that uh, they were saying me, all meat should be avoided and you should be abstinent from meat, and, uh, but we don't really know for sure. We just know that there was kind of a, an issue surrounding food that was being addressed here that Paul wants to kind of correct the, 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 um, the message on. And actually what he does, Paul answers kind of both of these, uh, both of these things by turning to Genesis 1. And kind of reminds, and he never mentions it explicitly, but he reminds us of the truth of Genesis 1 that we learned there, which is everything in God's creation is good and therefore should be received with gratitude. Everything in God's creation is good and should be received with gratitude. In other words, one of the foundations of Christian thought throughout history is to recognize that nothing in the created order is bad in and of itself. Right? That all that God created was good. You get this beautiful kind of poetic narrative in Genesis 1 that has this repetition. It was good. It was good. It was good. And then at the, when it, God looks over it all, it ends with a, a little bit of a, a variation, a little bit of punch that says it was very good. Right? So, so Genesis 1 reads, it is good. 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 That's six, right? It is very good. Okay? That's Genesis chapter 1. And so Paul is, in fact, reminding us this, that creation is good, and there are all, things to, all kinds of things to be enjoyed and to be thankful for. Now, sure, there are perversions and twists of those good things, uh, but the created order is good. That's foundational to Christian thought, uh, which is to say that life is filled with awe and wonder and all kinds of little gifts. Yeah, right, right? That, that if, if we could have eyes to see, if we could sort of unlock a sense of awe and wonder, then we would see that every single day is kind of filled with, with this hand of God's grace and God's beauty and the goodness of creation. That even on the worst of days, that there, there are, these days are filled with the goodness of creation. And, Paul wants to say, including the gift of committing one's life to one another in marriage, right? Uh, that this marriage, marriage is this kind of covenant relationship that should you feel drawn into it, right? So Paul isn't saying you have to get married. Uh, so he's not, he's not kind of like, the, the false teaching is marriage is bad, stay away. But Paul isn't making the opposite mistake of you have to get married. But rather Paul is saying, you should, you should, should you feel drawn into this kind of covenant relationship, it is a gift and should be celebrated. In fact, in, when, you, when you realize that First and Second Timothy, the context is, is Ephesus, and then you start reading the letter of Ephesians, you kind of see all sorts of connections. So uh, in Paul's own letter to the Ephesian church in chapter 5, there's this whole section 
on how husbands and wives should treat one another, what the relationship between children and slaves to parents and all these kinds of things should look like now under the rule of Christ. So he's trying to reframe the family in terms of the, the rule of Christ. And he's doing it for his own time, right? So there are some things that in our time we say, well, I don't think Paul went far enough, right? And that's a, that's a fair critique, but he's, he's pushing the envelope of his own time of what a family looks like under the reign and rule of Christ. And then, though, mysteriously, um, that whole section ends with Paul saying, but actually what I'm talking about is Christ in the church. <laughs> and this is, it's interesting because in Paul's mind, the covenant relationship of marriage that then often leads into, not always, but often leads into this, this kind of family relationship uh, this in some way, in some mysterious way, is a signpost that points us to the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. That the marriage covenant is a, is a signpost or a mirror to us of what the covenant looks like between Christ and his church. And so he's essentially saying that any theology that writes marriage off as inherently bad, that theology is misled, right? To which the modern evangelical church was like, we're not making that mistake, Okay, but the modern evangelical church has indeed made a mistake. We've practically gone the complete other way and idolized marriage to where singleness becomes a non-viable way of life. And so the way we organize our communities, the way we preach, <laughs> I hate to admit, is oftentimes sort of like so much in this funnel of married life uh, that the single that the single folks are like I don't even know how to I don't even know how to operate in this setting right and so so as a side note you can also make the opposite mistake of of idolizing marriage and you, so that you assume that marriage is for everyone in which case singleness does not become a viable way of life and this is certainly a mistake that I think modern evangelical church has made where we've assumed that everyone will eventually get married or something is wrong okay. Uh, and, and I think we need to just kind of recognize that Paul is saying, hey, marriage is a gift. It's a signpost of the covenant relationship between Christ and his church, but it's not an essential part of, of living because Paul himself was not married. And in other letters, we'll say, it is better to stay single, folks, <laughs> right? And so you kind of get this both and with Paul, and I think we would do well to, to listen to that. And, and so first of all, he's trying to move us back to kind of the, the goodness of, of this and the giftedness of the marriage relationship should one feel led into it. Does that make sense? So, so he's moving to Genesis 1, trying to, to correct there. Then he says, food also is a good gift that should be enjoyed. Amen. Amen. <laughs> right? Food, and all the foodies were like, mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, so... <laughs> All the foodies were like, I have a beautiful charcuterie board prepared for lunch of hummus and this and blah, 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 right? So that's what all the foodies said. But, but, but food is the, like this good gift that is meant to be enjoyed. But here's the deal. In modern culture, we are so far removed from our food. Here's what I mean. Our food comes to us processed, packaged, and priced, where all we have to do is pay the price, and then the food is ours to eat. And so, and because food is now shipped around the world, uh, we've kind of lost a sense of like seasonal foods. 
Uh, so we have, n- we have no sense of like when strawberries are in season. I mean, we know when they taste the best, but you can pretty much get them any time of year, right? And, and so you kind of lose the sense of like seasonal uh, foods. Now this, with one exception, which is pumpkin, okay? Pumpkin and pumpkin spice. It's like an explosion this time of year of pumpkin. That's like the last remaining seasonal food in culture, right? Uh, so, but here's the thing. Since we're so far removed from our food, we sit down to pray and we thank God for the meal. And in that moment, it would be very easy to think to ourselves, God did not provide this meal. I did. With the paycheck that I earned and then drove uh, to the store in the car that I bought that can connect to the computer in my pocket, uh, right, that I paid a little, no, I don't know, 25, 32 bucks a month, but I don't really know how much it costs, $1,000, right? And so, that, so then, so I drive to the store in this car that connects to Bluetooth to my phone, and then I pay for the groceries. And so it's easy when we sit down to meals and thank God for the food to really think, you know, God didn't provide this, I did, with the paycheck I earned and the groceries I bought. But put yourself in the shoes of our ancient brothers and sisters who largely had to grow their own food. Or if they weren't growing their own food, they were purchasing their food at a local market and likely purchasing it from their neighbors or their friends who, had, who themselves had grown it. So as a culture, they were deeply connected to the seasonal nature of food and the toil required to grow it. In other words, they understood that there were some things, when it comes to bringing food to the table, there were some things that were well within their control. There was tending and there was planting and there was all of these things that they could do. But then they were also very connected to the idea that there were some things that were out of their control or outside of their realm of control, like the weather or disease or animals coming to eat the crops, right? And so when food hit the table for our ancient brothers and sisters, there was a sense of gratitude to the divine for provision. You with me? That there was this sense in which there are things that I could control, but there are things that are wholly outside of my control. And so for this food to to hit the table, there was a whole series of miracles that had to take place that were completely outside of my control. So that when they sit down and to enjoy the food, Paul is calling them to an attitude of gratefulness. That when food comes to your table, we ought to be thankful to the divine. Because there is something miraculous about a seed planted in the ground that when properly kind of toiled and mixed and planted, but it has to mix with sunlight and rain and this whole series of miracles to produce a crop. You with me? So Paul is calling us to an attitude of thankfulness. Now, the same is true for meat, right? There are certain things that are within control. I can make sure that the animal is well-fed so that it grows. I can certainly be in control of when to butcher the animal. But there are, in the same way, there are things that are outside of my control, about like disease and things that might fall upon the animal. And so when food hit the table, there was a sense of awe and thanksgiving. And in light of all this, Paul essentially says, food is a gift and should be enjoyed with thankfulness. Now... 
So, while encouraging Timothy to address the theological problems of the Ephesian church, what Paul does is he reminds him of the core Christian teaching that creation is good and it is full of good gifts. Here's the thing. I will not ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you know Christians who seem to think the exact opposite, that everything is bad, right? Everything is bad. And let me tell you, let me be honest with you, I used to be this way. I used to look at the world with a certain degree of suspicion, uh, certainly at everything that did not, anything that did not bear the labeling of Christian, I found it suspect. And I think I'm getting better at living at what Paul is pointing out here, which is creation is good and life is filled with good gifts if we only have the eyes to see. I think I'm getting a little bit better at that. Uh, and I would invite you to join me in the journey of recognizing the goodness of life even in the midst of difficulty. Yeah? Uh, to kind of have this, this, um, this is like so cliche, to have an attitude of gratitude, okay? There's your bumper sticker. There's your hashtag, okay? So, but, but you understand what I'm saying. It's like kind of looking at life through the lens or the eyes of wonder, I think will serve us far better than, than looking at life through the lens of cynicism. And, and I have all the answers all the time. Um, here's the other thing. Some of you are getting nervous, right? Uh, everything God created is good. That just kind of provides this like wholesale permission to do whatever. So some of you are like, where are the limits? You know, uh, and I can, I can hear you. You're not actually saying it out loud, but I can still hear you. Uh, and and here's, the thing, here's the thing. The, the proclamation that all things are good and should be enjoyed with gratitude and, and thanksgiving uh, is not without limits. So certainly, there are perversions of good things that should be avoided altogether. And in one of Paul's letters, he instructs, he will say that certain things, that in certain settings, it is right to avoid things, particularly foods, that may be a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, Paul, Paul does say that, hey, you personally eating, drinking this thing, totally fine. No issue at all. But in this crowd, in this setting, among these folks, if you did that, it could be a stumbling block. So be sensitive to the journey, the faith journey of your brothers and sisters in Christ, which Paul himself is kind of putting guardrails or limitations on this kind of enjoying the goodness of creation. You with me? So it's not without limitations or guardrails. And so here's what I want you to do. This week, I encourage you to be more mindful about the good things in life and to be faithful to thank God for them, okay? Now, some of the mystics, and uh, some of the mystics will, will encourage us to, like, especially this time of year, take a moment to take in the beauty of the fall colors. Like, what would happen if on your way to work or um, uh, just going about your day, if you just took a moment to pause and actually take in the beauty that this time of year has to offer? Uh, that might be a small way to just thank God for the good gifts of, of a beautiful creation, right? This is something my family and I do intentionally every year, uh, is every year in the fall, we take a weekend off and go chase the colors in the mountains. And we've been doing it for eight or nine years running now, 
And it's, it's always just this really great time of, of just taking in God's beauty. It, fall tends to be really busy. You get back into all the school routines and you have all this stuff going on. It can kind of be a whirlwind. And so right as we kind of get used to the whirlwind, we say, let's take a break <laughs> and let's just enjoy. And you don't have to go away to do that. You can certainly do it any time. But I encourage you, take some time to enjoy the good things of life. Thank God for them. Maybe even take some time at the end of the day to reflect on all that was good. And, and certainly allow the superficial things to come. That pumpkin spice latte was good, right? So allow those superficial things to come, but also try to think more deeply. Like what, what is it today that I'm truly thankful for? And what, what are some things in my life that truly are good gifts for which I can give thanks, okay? I should have waited till Thanksgiving weekend to preach this message. Uh, so, so here's the link, though. I want to go all the way through verse 10. Do this, uh, Paul says, and he's actually, if you, pers- if you put these instructions before the brothers and sisters, and these instructions is referring both to the recognition of the goodness of creation, but also all the instructions that began in chapter 2. So he's kind of referring back to the body of instructions. And he's saying, if you put these before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ, and you will be able to give proper teaching to the family of God. Now remember, this is not written to a community, it's written to Timothy. And so he's saying, hey, do this, put these instructions there, you'll be faithful to God, and you'll be, you, you can do all this stuff. And then he says, <laughs> but don't assume that godliness, or don't assume that Christian maturity is automatic. Okay? Don't assume that just by doing the thing that you can just kind of be in, in autopilot and then all of a sudden uh, it, will, it will be like Christian maturity will just come automatically or easily. Rather, he says, Christian maturity, godliness requires training in the same way that physical fitness requires training. So again, what Paul's point here is pretty clear. In the same way that physical fitness requires exercise, godliness requires training. And the goal of that training, and actually Paul doesn't say what the training is, right? He doesn't say, here's how you train. He doesn't say, here's like the P90X of spiritual formation. So if you want to go full on hardcore, here it goes. Um, Or like if you, is there like a low key thing? Like, (laughs) Like I'm always like, what video is the before guy using? Because I could go for that video. That would be great. You know what I mean? Like, there's like always the before and after, and you're like, the before guy looks pretty good. Uh, so, so anyway, like, so Paul is not, he actually isn't very explicit at all about here's the hardcore way for Christian formation if you really want to get serious, but here's kind of the, you know, he provides none of that. But rather he does, what he does say is that it's going to have to be done. And the goal of which is Life, in verse 8, is life. In other words, he says, we will benefit in this life and we will prepare ourselves for the life that is yet to come. That this kind of spiritual training, it will, will have immediate benefits to us, but then also there will be benefit in the life to come. And then in verse 10, Paul is honest to say, this is a struggle. This is not easy. It requires some intentionality, some discipline on our part. Uh, that Christian maturity is not automatic. Um, and so, in other words, being committed to the life of the new world is not easy. It requires discipline, creativity, commitment. But this is how we mature as Christians. And this is how we enter into the life of the new world. 
And so I want to end, um, end this morning's message by kind of recognizing that when we, when we train our physical bodies, that's a very personal thing, right? That, that we, we kind of get to know our own body. We, own, we know our own limits. We know kind of what kind of exercise we enjoy and can do long-term, that, that which we cannot. Uh, it's kind of this very personal thing, right? Uh, in the same way is our spiritual training, that there's so many like personal elements to spiritual training. And, and I can tell you, uh, true to my roots, uh, I was very tempted uh, to just kind of announce to you this morning and challenge you uh, to just do your devotions every day. And how that looks like is read your Bible, uh, pray, and, and read um, my utmost for his highest. And, by the way, do it in the morning because God likes that better. Because So if you, like... God likes it better in the morning, and the later you get in the day, the less God pays attention. So if you're doing your devotions at night, like you have just the last thread of God's attention, and I'm sorry, that's just how the world works, right? So this was my temptation. My temptation was to just kind of create this blanket spiritual discipline for you. Uh, but recognizing that, that, that physical training is so individual, I also want to recognize that spiritual training is also just like this very kind of personal thing. And, and there's been books written about just scores and scores of different spiritual disciplines that you can do. The spiritual discipline of silence, of scripture reading, of, uh, of Sabbath time, um, of fasting. Like the list goes on and on and on of all these spiritual disciplines. And I don't want to say that one size fits all. So instead what I want to do is I want to give you kind of four guiding principles for spiritual training. Sound good? And these are going to be like super high level, okay? So some of you are going to be like, there is no practical application in that, Pastor Andy. Go back to preaching school. And that's okay. I received that feedback, but I want to give you high level stuff, okay? So number one, spiritual training must be communal. Spiritual training must be communal. Now, instantly when we think about spiritual formation, it's me and God, okay? And so number one on the list is to recognize it's not just you and God, we are social beings, and so your formation as a person of God has everything to do with the formation of the people of God. You with me? It's a communal exercise. Um, in fact, this is a quick side note. Do we have tons of time? Yeah, we've got tons of time. Quick side note. Uh, uh, you guys have heard me say this before. I'll say it again in case you haven't. Uh, in the Greek, there is uh, specific words for singular you and plural you. Uh, which means that, um, but in English, we don't. It could be you, or it could be you, right? Or, or as, you know, if we were in Texas, I'd say y'all, okay? So it could be you, or it could be y'all. In Greek, there's a difference. In English, there's not. So when we read the scriptures, a lot of times we come across the word you, and we think it means me, when in fact, it means y'all. So, so often what Paul and the scriptures are talking about in terms of the formation is God is trying to form and call to himself a community, not just you. You with me? You, individual you, are a key part and an essential part of the collective, 
But oftentimes, Paul, is, Paul and others are talking about what God is wanting to do among the community, among his people. So spiritual training must, there, that side note ended. Uh, so spiritual training must be communal. We are social beings, and so our formation as God's people must include others. And I don't want to sound too coy here, but this is why a church community can be valuable. This is why church attendance can be valuable. Is because it sets us like sets aside dedicated space and time for communal formation, to connect with others, to be encouraged by others, to be sharpened by others. Um, that there's this, there is that the spirit. Listen to me here. The spirit of God is at work before service, after service, just as much as He is in service, because of the connections. The, the, the joys that are shared, the laughter that happens, the pains that are revealed, the, communi- the, 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 the first seeds of friendship and relationship that are built in those moments. These are holy moments and have everything to do with our formation as the people of God. Are you with me? So our spiritual training must be communal. And then, of course, you know, spiritual training must, have, must be also be personal, must have a personal element. It is not enough to just have discussions at life group or go to church. There must be times for you to personally connect and interact with God through prayer, through silence, through mindfulness, through reading, uh, through listening to music, whatever, whatever ways in which you connect with God. If it's sitting by a mountain stream, whatever it is, kind of finding ways where you can interact with the divine is so important. Number three, I hope this sets some people free. Recognize the ebb and flow. There will be seasons of intense connection with God and of intense growth. And then there will be seasons of like just maintenance (laughs) or just discipline. Like I'm just doing it, right? And there will be seasons where you feel like your prayers reach to the uttermost heights of heaven. And then there'll be seasons when you feel like your prayers don't even reach the top of the room. Does it make sense? Which Heaven is not up there. You guys get that, but you know what I'm saying. So, um, <laughs> so, so there'll be, there'll be these, these kind of moments, this ebb and a flow. Um, thinking about like the, the connections between like physical fitness and spiritual fitness. You know how physical fitness, kind of around the holidays, <laughs> like really struggles, you know? You're like, there are so many sweets. And, and, and like you kind of have this moment where it's like, I really messed up from like Thanksgiving to the end of the year. And so January 1st, I'm on it, right? Uh, listen, there will be holiday seasons in your spiritual formation. I mean, that's just the truth. Have you ever felt pressure for your spiritual formation to be a graph that is just up and to the right? Just like me and God, we just get closer every single day. Anybody says that, I'm just like, I call false, like liar, I don't believe you, right? Because there's an ebb and a flow. I'm trying to set you free here. Uh, So don't be disappointed or think that you're doing something wrong when you don't see the heavens break open and a heavenly choir sing over every church service or every devotional time or every prayer, okay? You're not doing anything wrong. You're, You're human. Congratulations. Welcome to the journey. Of, of spiritual formation. There's an ebb and a flow. And then the last thing, uh, mix it up. Someone getting in shape over the long haul simply won't do the same workout over and over, week to week, year after year. 
uh, and neither should you expect that this, this formation of my time with God is going to be exactly the same uh, year to year, month after month, week after week. Uh, and so if something starts to feel dry, then just mix it up. Change the place, change the time, because guess what? God is listening all day long, <laughs> right? That whole thing, like I grew up, like as a teenager, just like, oh, I hate the mornings, and so now God is displeased with me because I can't meet with him in the morning, you know? Don't set yourself free from that kind of guilt. Uh, but keep a journal, practice silence, uh, listen to songs, written prayers, extemporaneous prayers, devotional times at a different place, prayer walks, all these kinds of ways are just kind of mixing up uh, my interaction with God, uh, I think can really help. So my encouragement to you is, yes, be intentional about your spiritual formation because it is like a kind of training. Um, but, there's not, but it's not one size fits all. Uh, and I think these kind of four guiding things will help us. Uh, it must be communal, must be personal. There's an ebb and a flow and mix it up. Okay, I hope that's helpful to you today. So this morning, I encourage you then to look at creation, see the goodness of it all, be grateful for all that is there to enjoy, and then understand that spirit, our spiritual formation as a people of God is not automatic, but requires training over the course of a lifetime. Okay? Well, let me say a word of prayer, and um, I'll lead us to the table for communion today. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your presence with us, for your goodness. Thank you, God, for this word that I hope encourages people. I've done my best to uh, communicate it in a way that is clear and understandable. But God, I pray that you would um, take something that's been said today and just translate it in our hearts into precisely what we need to hear. And may your spirit be freely at work among us. God, we pray. And, and Lord, as we gather around the table, uh, we do pray that you would meet us here, uh, that we come to the table to receive not to take, uh, not as the acting agent, but recognizing, God, that you are the acting agent. And so, God, may we come with hearts that are ready to receive. And whether that's we come to receive um, just a, uh, with thankful hearts, whether we come ready to receive healing in some way, God, we pray that you would meet us at the table and do your work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.